You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Revelation chapter 3, if you'll turn there. Let's read through it one time, and then we'll go to the verse that, uh, that I have responsibility to, to look at this evening. It says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. And because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name, he that hath an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that hath an ear, all singular, that's not a church, that's an individual. Let him hear what the Spirit saith. I love in the King James because it indicates the tense sometimes is presently saying. This is something the Lord is saying tonight to the churches, plural. So this is a... A letter to a church is being spoken this evening from the heart of Jesus Christ to the church is plural and to every individual that would hear what the Spirit is presently saying. And I certainly hope that's true in my life. In the 10th verse, it says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the uh, the world to try them that dwell on the earth it's the third specific promise in the letter where the lord is saying i also will keep it's a reciprocal verb because you have kept he's saying i also will keep and it's a promise a prophecy look as we look at this, just remember, you know, 1972, the early, you know, those early days, prophecy was such a huge part of the Jesus movement. Prophecy was a part of evangelism. 
We didn't know everything we know now, but everybody was excited about the return of the Lord. It was a huge part of everything that we believed. And one of the things I believe that Chuck did was he handed to you and I, the fishermen, the carpenter, the right to have a premillennial, pre-tribulational faith. It was going on in seminaries. It was going on in some places. You know, I'm back there in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary's there. One of the interesting things is in the last century, the first half of the last century, all the pre-mill, pre-trib guys were reformed. They were all the Presbyterians. And then at Princeton, when the, the men there felt it was becoming too liberal, Robert Dick Wilson, who I think was a genius, 45 Semitic languages, he went to Westminster but his counterpart in Semitic languages went to Dallas because he was pre-mill, pre-trib out of Princeton. Gretchen Machen went to Westminster, but his counterpart in Greek language went to Dallas because he was pre-mill, pre-trib. Same with Julius Van Til and these guys. So those things were in the, the seminaries. They were in Bible schools. But I really believe Chuck, I, re, I just remember from the beginning, he was so clear about the rapture of the church. He has always been so clear about Israel and Israel's place. It's one thing that gets lost in Reformed replacement theology. And Chuck has always been clear on these things, and these are essential to us to understand where we are tonight, to understand the coming of the Lord, to understand the urgency of the hour. And, and Chuck, you're the one that kind of gave that to the fishermen, the common man, to, to take hold of and to believe again. And you guys that were there early, it drove. It was an important part of our evangelism and what we believed and what drove us. Because we believed the Lord was coming. We didn't see all the signs we see today. It's almost like there's so many things going on today, we're almost bogged down with it. We had very little evidence then, but we were all crazy about it. Jesus is coming. Everybody was excited. So as, as I come to this text tonight, I want to take some time and break it down. I see this many guys under 35 years old. You know, there's a grammatical argument here that I'm not going to mess with a lot. Uh, if you really want to dig in, you, you should have Robert Thomas's commentary on Revelation. It's two volumes. It's meat. It's worth digging through. And probably John Volvord does a better job on Revelation 3.10 than anyone. Anything you can get by him on the verse will help you as you look at these things. But, but there is a contextual, you know, position that I think the immediate context makes it obvious what this is saying. And then there's a greater context of the book of Revelation itself. Then I want to look at a greater context of the New Testament and then church history and then come back and make some application as we look at these things. But look, Understand that you're not a country bumpkin if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Understand, you know, that you're not a hick if you believe in the millennium. In fact, in the early church, people who didn't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ amongst the church fathers were considered heretics. This has always been the faith of the church. And don't let anybody tell you anything other than that. The argument from grammar just simply goes like this. Is this saying that the, the, those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, that the church will be taken after the tribulation, say what this verse is saying is, I will keep thee from the hour. That is saying it's, it's, it's preservation. 
that immunity. And it, the, the, the Greek phrase can be used that way, that he's going to preserve them through the tribulation. The only problem is there's not a shred of evidence of that anywhere in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. There's no shred of evidence of that. You know, the only ones preserved are the 144,000. Everyone else is martyred and persecuted. You go through this book. You don't want to be here then. There's no preservation that would be an encouragement to me through that period of time. I think the proper way to look at this is speaking about a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It's not specifically saying rapture, but it's talking about taking out, keeping from, and putting in an outside position. Of course, the only logical then conclusion is it's speaking of the rapture of the church. Teresa Eck, to to put outside of. You, You find the phrase... To get an interesting idea of it, when Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark's Gospel, he says to the guys, don't tell anybody what you've seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the next verse says that they all talked together and said, what is this rising from the dead? What does it mean? Now you think they're Jews. They should understand the rising from the dead. What you don't catch is he said this. He says, don't tell anybody what you've seen until the Son of Man is ek necron, risen out from among the dead. They talked and said, what in the world is this rising out from among the dead? Because the Jews believed in one general resurrection, the righteous and the wicked. They didn't know anything about a resurrection out from among the dead. This phrase here gives us the idea, it's out from among. The preservation is out from the hour. That's what we see here. So our, our immediate context is this. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep, the idea is away from, the from the hour, definite article, of the temptation or trial, definite article. King James says, which shall come. The Greek is, which is about to come. It's hanging over. It's imminent. On all the world, it's a global trial. And the purpose of it before God is to try them that dwell upon the earth, to try the earth dwellers. So the phrase which is about to come, it it identifies the hour, not the trial. The trial's in the hour. There is a time period, this is what this is saying, that the Lord is going to keep the church of Philadelphia, you and I, from... This time period is about to come. It is a time period of trial. When it comes, it will be global. It's not just a test for the Church of Philadelphia in Turkey. It's not just a test for the Roman world. This is a global, worldwide trial that will come. And the purpose of its coming will be to try those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase is used ten times in the book of Revelation. I'm going to look at maybe five of them so you can understand who the earth dwellers are. If you look over, in fact, you don't have to turn. I'll do the the turning. In chapter 6, verse 10, those there that are under the altar that have been martyred and they cried with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth there's our earth dwellers in chapter 8 verse 13 it says and I beheld 
And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. There they are. By reason of the other voices of the tr- trumpet of the three angels, which are about to sound. In chapter 11, verse 10, it says there, when the two prophets are slain and so forth, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry those who dwell on the earth and shall send gifts to one another. Happy Dead Prophets Day. Because these two prophets tormented, the first three and a half years, tormented the entire earth. Those are the earth dwellers. Chapter 13 is more clear uh, than probably any other place where it says, And all that dwell upon the earth, there's our phrase, shall worship him, the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Look, I could go on and, and cite some more. The point is, earth dwellers are unsaved people who are rebelling against God. And as you go through the book of Revelation, you find them actually lifting their fists to heaven and cursing God. In fact... As chapter 15 ends and 16 begins, it says God, as, as the vials of his wrath are finally ready to be poured out, he withdraws in the temple. No man can get near him. It's almost as though he's brooding. This is the last thing. Finally, his wrath without measure is going to be poured out on all of those on, that are remaining on the earth, and no one can even get near him. So our context, our immediate context in the verse is because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of the temptation, a specific temptation, which is about to come. It's looming over us, and it's about to come on the entire globe. And the purpose of it is to try the Christ rejectors that live on the earth, who certainly... I would believe that we're removed from that time period. Listen, a greater if we, if we look at a greater context in the book of Revelation itself, certainly you all know chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me said, Come up hither. He's going to set before him an open door. Here's one that's set before this church. Come up hither. I love chapter 5 where it begins and it says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside. It's a seal sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book to loose the seals thereof. And notice this, no man in heaven nor on the earth, neither under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy. Look, first of all, I take great consolation in that. No man was found worthy in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. For years, I thought certainly I had to be. Uh, I'm glad here. You know, it relieves a tremendous amount of pressure. No man is found worthy. But this is the greatest closure of escrow, escrow in history. This is a kinsman, somebody who's walked the earth that has to be found. And it says, no man in heaven. When did men get to heaven? There, none of the men that are in heaven are found worthy or on the earth or under the earth. And, of course, wonderfully, as we move over further in the chapter... Weep not, the line of the tribe of Judah, behold, I turned and I saw in the midst and so forth a lamb with the marks of slaughter. The Jesus 
favorite name for himself through the book of Revelation 28 times, the Lamb of God. And this is the only time it's diminutive, a little lamb with the marks of slaughter, seven horns, seven eyes. And then he says, and those who were around the throne, the elders and so forth, they fell down. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book, the scroll, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. I'm reading King James, and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. That's not just Israel. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The only ones that can sing this song are those that are redeemed. George Eldon Ladd, Gundry, the strong post-tribulationist guys, and others, they say this, if in fact... Verse 9 reads us, then that group is speaking of their own redemption, and that must refer to the church, which immediately makes us all pre-tribulationists. Look, if in your whatever translation you're reading, often there's a gloss or a note, and it says this, in the oldest manuscripts, it says they or them, in the best manuscripts. Some, foolishly enough, even say the original manuscripts. I don't think anyone's ever seen one of those. Here's the truth. Textual resources. You guys understand where I'm at? If they're singing us here, then the church is in heaven. Truth is the textual resources for the book of Revelation are fewer than any other book in the New Testament. There are about 230 total Greek manuscripts for the book of Revelation, about 95 of them are, are the oldest, and then they consider them the most authoritative. And the critics will tell you this, well, only 23 of the 20 of the 95 manuscripts say us. And, and because we're country bumpkins, we're just supposed to say, oh, I didn't know that. Here's what they don't tell you. Out of those 95 Manuscripts, only 24 of them contain Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And 23 of the 24 say us. 23 of the 24 say us. Look, all of that should be settled by the prologue, which was written last, after the epilogue, where John wrote, anybody, you know, he had the vision, he recorded that. Then he writes, anybody changes anything, anybody takes away from it, they're in deep trouble. And then as he writes the prologue, he says, and from Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 5, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, of the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And there is not a manuscript that varies. There's no contradiction there in any of our manuscripts except uh, Vaticanus, which doesn't have the book of Revelation in it. So, you know, this is strong. Fourth century, Jerome writes a Latin translation. He goes 
to Antioch, to Jerusalem, and to Alexandria, studies manuscripts, and he writes us in both places from the manuscripts he studied. Um, the Peshitta, the ancient Syriac, I have a copy, it says us. Tyndale's Triumph says us. The Geneva Bible says us. The later Vulgate says us. 1611, 1634 say us. You and I have great and should have great confidence that Jesus Christ is coming for us before the world starts to fall apart. That should be important to us as we look at the world around us right now. And particularly, he's saying here, look, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also, he's going to do some keeping too, will keep you, he says, from the hour of the temptation which is about to come. There's, there's an imminence to that. It's about to come. If it was imminent 2,000 years ago, what does it mean now? In the beginning of verse 11, he says, Behold, I, I will come quickly. If he's going to take us out before the hour of testing that's going to come globally upon Christ's rejectors comes, how far away can that be right now? And the truth is the New Testament church embraced and taught the imminent return of Christ. They didn't have the jargon we do to say a pre-tribulational rapture and so forth. But they believed that Christ was coming in their day. In the larger biblical context, you hear Jesus in the book of Luke saying, Be ye like men that are looking for their Lord. And when he comes, you might be ready, like those waiting for the bridegroom. In John 14, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I'll go and uh, go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. No Jew had that expectation. They expected Messiah to come and set up his kingdom on earth. He says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The book of Romans, Paul, never apologetic in any way says by whom also chapter 5 will therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God that's where he lived he, sa- he says that the, cre- the creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the manifestations of the sons of God. He says, if we are, sa- we are saved by hope, but hope, if, that, if it is seen, is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. And of course, he says in chapter 13, knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. There's no generation of the church that that's been truer in their lives than ours. He says, he says now is our salvation nearer than we believe. The night is far spent. This is Paul. The day is at hand. It's looming. It's hanging over. It's imminent. It has drawn nigh, literally, is what he says there. First uh, Corinthians, you come behind in no spiritual gift, chapter 1, verse 7, waiting for the coming of the Lord, the Corinthian church. He says in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, look, you guys are single. If you get married, that's cool. You're not sinning. I would spare you. And he said, considering the Lord's coming soon, you're probably better off just to stay single. I mean, if all the single guys would have listened to Paul, the church would have been gone in the first century. He was expecting the coming of the Lord then. Of course, in chapter 15, 
He says, then we which are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. You know, that, that, that we're going to be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, he uses a personal pronoun. He includes himself. And, of course, as he signs off in 1 Corinthians, he says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The Lord cometh. That was the greeting and the goodbye in the early church. Early believers in the church looked at each other. When they saw each other, they said, the Lord cometh. When they broke up the meeting, they said, the Lord cometh. That's, what, that's how they said goodbye to one another. It was the solid belief of the New Testament church. Philippians 3.20, you know these verses. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, and at the end of every chapter in First Thessalonians, he says, he says God, you know, we've turned to God from idols, to serve the living and the true God, and to wait, that's expectantly wait, to wait for his son from heaven. This is, the, this is the New Testament church. This is what were the apostles saying as they were teaching the churches. These are the things we have written down. Imagine what kind of news this is. Now, we know in Thessalonica, he was there for three Sabbaths, and he was driven out. People say, oh, the second coming, that's not important for new believers. You don't get established. Yeah, we'll read First and Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians may be the earliest letter. He's writing to a church he had only taught for three weeks. He had talked about the rapture. He had talked about the Antichrist. He had talked about the imminent return of Christ. He had talked about all of those things to a brand new baby church. Uh, Paul, as he writes First Timothy and he closes, he's expecting Timothy to see the return of the Lord. He says... Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. He says, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He expected Timothy... To see the appearing of the Lord. Of course, Paul's great statement on grace is in Titus. He says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Looking for James, of course, the Lord's brother and in hebrews it's just you'll find this throughout the new testament he says be ye also patient establish your hearts for the coming of the lord has drawn near is the way that that is written out first peter again chapter four the end of all things is at hand has drawn near you just find it oh, and there are dozens of verses through the new testament in fact Probably the broadest subject without controversy in the New Testament is the second coming of the Lord. Some say it's as much as one out of every ten verses. Look, I remember being in Northern California with Chuck in the Mount Hermon Conference, 911. And I'm... Uh, I'm in the, the room there and the, the places the, the, where they're lodging, and Don McClure knocks on the door. Boom, 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 boom. I open the door. You know, I'm half asleep. He says, we're under attack. I said, sure. 
It's Don, you know. Sure. No, 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 New York, the Pentagon. We're under I said, yeah, yeah, I know. He said, Joe, I'm not kidding. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. So then, you know, he goes away. I think, oh, good, I'm, good. I'm glad he's gone. And uh, then my phone rings, my wife, and she starts telling me. And I, and I walked out on the balcony, and I, all I have is my shorts. I don't have any shoes, I don't have any shirt. And the door closed behind me and locked. So now I'm, I'm out on the balcony and just... And I had to hang over the balcony, drop down to the next balcony, drop down to the next balcony. And like an idiot, I'm walking around with nothing on, trying to find somebody to let me in the room. And they're all watching on the TV, you know, <laughs> what's going on. But, but I remember Kathy calling. I saying, look, there, there's, there's money in the bank. You need to do this. Because th- at that point, we didn't know if it was going to escalate, it was going to go on. And I just remember telling her, look, I'm, I'm going to get home one, one way or another. You tell the kids, I'm coming. I'm going to get there. All I wanted to do was get there because there was danger. All I wanted to do is get back with my bride. And there's nothing more important to him than getting back to his purchased possession, his bride. And there's no doubt why it's the broadest subject in the New Testament. Listen, these men, of course, talked to those that were around them, and the Didache. Written 100 to 120 A.D. says this, Watch for your lives, your life's sake. Let not your lamps be quenched, nor your loins be unloosed. Be ye ready, for you know not the hour that your Lord doth come. The first epistle of Clement, 96 A.D., says, Of a truth, soon and suddenly his will shall be accomplished, as the scripture bears witness, saying, speedily will he come, he will not tarry. In his second epistle, he says, let us every hour expect the kingdom of God in love and in righteousness, because you know not the day of the Lord's appearing. The epistle to Barnabas says, the Lord has cut short the times and the days of his beloved, that his beloved may hasten. Also, the Lord is near and his reward. Ignatius in Antioch says the last time uh, are close, and he exhorts those to expect him. Clement of Rome, again, in 40 to 100, wrote, pre- he preached the, the coming of Christ, and he said that Clement expressed the hope that he would come quickly and not tarry. In fact, Harnack, who is a, a liberal theologian, says in the history of Christianity, three main forces are found to have acted as auxiliaries to the gospel. They have elicited the ardent enthusiasm of men whom the, the bare preaching of the gospel would never have decided converts. These include a belief in the speedy return of Christ and his glorious reign on the earth. First in point of time came the faith in the nearness of Christ's second advent and the establishment of his reign of glory on the earth. Indeed, it appears so early that it might be questioned whether it ought not to be regarded as a, the essential part of Christian religion or Christian doctrine. Jesse Forrest Silver in his book, The Lord's Return, says uh, of the apostolic fathers, they expected the return of the Lord in their day. They believed the time was imminent because their Lord had taught them to live in a watchful attitude. And concerning the Antinocene fathers, he says, by tradition, they knew the faith of the apostles. They taught the doctrine of the imminent premillennial return of the Lord. In fact, John Wesley said, perhaps he will appear as the day spring from on high before the morning light. 
Oh, do not set a time. Expect him every hour. Now he is nigh, even at the door. John Wesley. Martin Luther said, I believe that all the signs which are to precede the last days have already appeared. Let us not think that the coming of Christ is far off. Let us look up with heads lifted up. Let us expect our Redeemer's coming with longing and a cheerful mind. John Calvin in the Institute said, Scripture uniformly enjoins us to look with expectation for the advent of Christ. And by, by the way, I believe that if Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or William Farrell or any of those guys were alive today and saw the rebirth of the nation of Israel and what's happening in the world, they would all be ardent premillennial pre-tribulationists because they were fearless and they saw the truth and weren't afraid to interpret the Bible as just what it said. To imitate their faith hundreds of years ago doesn't make sense in the light that we live in today. If it was taught in the New Testament, if it was a constant part of the faith of the apostles and of the church fathers, how much more should it be something that you and I seriously think about as we look at the world that we're living in today. You guys all know the Middle East is a cauldron. It's a cauldron. The dynamics of money, deception, oil, religion, things are boiling. How far away is the hour of trial that's ready to come, hanging over a Christ-rejecting world, how far away is that? If any generation that's ever lived should take that to heart, obviously it should be you and I. I think as I look at this, and it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches tonight. Do we really believe that Jesus not only could come at any time, but will? You know, just studying the Psalms in Philly on Wednesday nights, just, you know, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. My strength and my rock and my redeemer. I think, Lord, am I really serious about that? Sometimes stuff comes out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth. The meditation of my heart. Do I really believe he could come at any moment? Am I bringing my thoughts into captivity to Christ? Could there be time for pornography? For an affair? Why are we wondering if we can have a few brews? Jesus is going to be showing up any moment. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Does the church right now, you know, what condition does it need to strengthen itself in? The world that's around us, that the Lord loves, that's the only reason he's tarried this long. Does the world we're living in need a church that, that's filled with a, a few more brews or filled with the Holy Ghost? What do we need to be in the world that we're living in? Do we really believe he's coming at any time? Is there a pressure to that in our lives? There should be. There should be. 
What is the Spirit saying? He that has an ear, look, this is individual. I've got my own stuff. There's a lot of things in my life that are not yet Christ-like. There's a lot of things when I get alone with him. I'm, I'm not doing anything that disqualifies me from ministry, but there's just stuff that need to change in my life, in my thoughts. And I'm thinking, Lord, you could come at any moment. He describes his coming as preemptive, like a thief in the night. If he waits much longer, we're all going to be looking around up in the sky. If it's going to have a sense of unexpectedness to it, how much longer can that be when you look what's going on? And I'm not expecting to be raptured because of my own righteousness. I've been sailing high. Chuck's first study when he said, I'm going to stand before the Lord. And he said, my own righteousness is zip. I'm right there. I've been hanging there all week. I'm going to stand before the Lord because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not because of my performance. We're talking about a miracle. This physical frame, this this mortality, mortal putting on immortality, this corruption putting on incorruption, in the twinkling of an eye, you think that miracle's related to behavior? The miracle to me isn't that he loves us enough to take us out ahead of time. The miracle is that it's going to happen at all, and it's going to happen by his grace because we're blood-bought. And he says that here. To me, this is the epicenter of it all. He's leaning over John in his glory. His eyes are a flame of fire. His hair is white like snow. He's, his countenance, his appearance is like the sun. His, 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 his breast is girded with a breastplate that's golden. His feet are like, you know, brass burning in a fire. And his voice is like the voice of many waters. John had leaned on his breast. He's laying on the ground like a dead man. And Jesus had prayed, and John wrote in his gospel, that he said, Father, I will that they behold me, hold the glory that I had with you before the world was. John seeing it at this point in time and he's laying on the ground like a dead man and the Lord says to him right he said yes sir I mean we love the Bible we believe in inerrancy not just the writer was inspired the wrote you know that it went to the page what we have in front of us is divine it's powerful it's alive but think of how this is not just inspired by the spirit John is laying down Jesus in his glory is leaning over him dictating the letter and he says now write this to Philadelphia And he doesn't reprove Philadelphia at all. That must bum John out because he said to John, John, write this to the angel of the church of Ephesus. I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. The problem is the angel of the church of Ephesus was John. He had pastored that church for over 30 years and now is exiled to Patmos. And he hears Jesus telling him, John, your church has left its first love. Now John's got to write about another church, and the Lord's got nothing to reprove this church for. 
And the Lord is leaning over John in his glory and leaning over us tonight. And John is reeling, wait, Domitian's not in control. The Caesars are not in control. You know, Washington's being tough. They're unfair. They're bullying us. They're pushing us with taxes. They're doing all these other things. John looks up and says, Caesar's not in control. There's the Lord in all of his glory, his eyes a flame of fire. And there's a voice like many waters, like Niagara Falls, saying, John, write this down. And tell them, because they have kept the word of my patience, what that is, is consider him who endured such things at the hand of sinners. What he's saying is, John, tell them because they have kept the center, the center. They've kept the gospel. They have held on to the unimaginable price that I paid in my own blood for them. And because they've kept that and they're not ashamed of that, John, you tell them tonight in Philadelphia that whatever's going on in the world. I'm the one that's in charge and I am in my glory. And you tell them because they have kept the word of my endure, what I endured and my suffering, I'm going to keep them out of the hour that I'm bringing on the entire globe that's about to come and is going to try all of the Christ rejectors that are on the planet. It's an urgent hour. It's time for us to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. We have a great heritage from the New Testament onward. And we should never doubt or be ashamed of our premillennial, pre-tribulational faith. Christ is coming for his church before he judges a Christ-rejecting world. After all, he tells us, Treat your wives the way Christ treats the church. Some of you treat your wives like you're post-tribulationist, I know. (laughs) Guys, he's coming for us. He paid for us. We're his blood-bought bride. And consider him who endured such things at the hands of sinner. Here he is, eyes of flame of fire. His countenance like the sun in his strength. His glory, his voice like Niagara Falls. He gave his face to the smiters, to those who plucked out his beard, who spit in his face. His visage was more marred than that of any man. It pleased the Father to bruise him, and he laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed of a message that cuts right across the grain of all of this world and Washington's not in control and Moscow's not in control and the power brokers in this world are not in control and the legislators are not in control. There is a Lord stands over us in all of his glory. We are his blood-bought possession and he tells us, I love you. I love you. You have some strength. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. I'm going to make those who persecute you realize that I have loved you. And because you have kept the word of my suffering and my endurance, I also, reciprocal, I also am going to keep something. And what I'm going to keep is I'm going to keep you out of the hour of trial that is looming over the world right now. It's about to come 
on the entire globe to try all of the earth dwellers. Behold, consider this. Think about it. I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. No man take thy crown. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to make you like a pillar. And then Jesus dictating to John says this. He that hath an ear. This is Jesus saying it about his spirit. He that hath an ear. Everyone I look at here has got two. He that hath an ear. An attitude of heart. Let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Joe Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Joe's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.